Welcome back. I hope you had a great day so far. I've been asked to make uh, some announcements again, not that I'm obsessed about the cocktail function and party, but it is not here. It's at the campus in Bryanston. It starts at 7 o'clock. Coaches are available. They will depart outside the main ground floor entrance to the convention center from 6.30 p.m. to 6.45. They will return to the convention center from 10 o'clock p.m. to 11 p.m. from Bryanston. And along the way, they'll pass through this Garden Court Sant Sun and the Sant Sun Hotel. Please remember to bring your ticket with you, which is inside your name tag pouch. The convention app is available for those that were not here this morning and haven't noticed that. Please just search for ASA 2017 convention and download it. Uh, we really need to use this to rate the speakers. And I've been asked to just indicate to you how you go about rating speakers. So when you go to any particular session on the program, you would find two things. One, there's a green icon at the top that looks like a WhatsApp uh, situation. <laughs> That's where you click in there. And within there, there are questions that are asked about the speaker and the presentation. That's the type of feedback that's requested. There are some stars that you would see uh, in the mid-screen there. Uh, you can rate there as well, but more importantly, to give specific feedback in terms of the question about how good the speaker was, please go to that grid icon there and be able to rate the speakers. Again, to remind you that to share the conversation and create discussions on Twitter, it's hashtag ASA2017. Continuing with our theme for this morning about making ourselves relevant for the future, we know that technology is a big driver. And so we are honored and privileged to have Radaslav Albrecht from Berlin. He arrived this morning from Germany to come and address us and give us a talk in this final plenary of today. Radoslav is the founder and CEO of Bitbond, the first global marketplace lending platform for small business loans. Bitbond leverages blockchain technology to connect creditworthy borrowers with individual and institutional investors. Radoslav is a frequent speaker at conferences about financial innovation and financial inclusion using Bitcoin and blockchain technology. Before founding Bitbond, Radoslav worked for Roland Berger Strategy Consultants and Deutsche Bank in London, advising financial services providers in Europe and Western Africa in restructuring and post-merger integrations, as well as working in sales and trading of structured products. Let us please give Radoslav a round of applause as he takes onto the stage to give us his talk. Thank you. Thank you, Ranti, for the kind words. And thank you for the invitation for, to speak here today. It's a great honor to be back in Africa. It's been four years that I was here, and uh, it's a great pleasure to be talking and presenting about blockchain technology here, which, in my view, is one of the most exciting and most powerful technologies that's going to drive change in the financial services industry over the next couple of years. In the presentation today, I want to talk about three things. First of all, I want to give an overall introduction about the technology itself, which I think normally helps if you want to come up with your own applications. 
And after that, I will give a couple of examples of applications of blockchain technology in financial services and then also for the insurance industry. So let's get started with a primer on blockchain technology and smart contracts, which are run on top of blockchains. So why is this technology so powerful and why should we spend some time with it? Well, first of all, it makes existing applications more efficient, which means it can save us time, it can save us cost, and it also enables new kinds of applications that we have not yet seen, and that might change the product landscape in financial services quite substantially. So where does the technology actually come from? Where are the roots? The original idea was to create digital cash, to have a digital asset that can be transferred. And in order to do that, there was one big problem, and that's the fact that digital assets are inflationary. They don't know scarcity. If you imagine an MP3 file, a text file, or an image file, if you wanted to use that in order to pay someone, it wouldn't be really suited for that, just because you know that when you send that MP3 file to someone, they can copy it endlessly, and it loses value. It's inflationary. And this problem is also called the double spending problem of digital assets. And then one person came up with a solution. His name is Satoshi Nakamoto, and he invented the blockchain as a help in order to create digital cash. And the blockchain, as its functionality, is a distributed public ledger that stores all transactions in a digital asset. What does it practically mean? Let's assume I have one unit of currency in a digital asset, and I spend it, which means that I send it to a different account. And then I want to spend a second unit of currency that I actually don't have. Well, nobody will accept that transaction because they can verify that the one currency unit that I had, I already spent just because all of the transactions in a digital currency are publicly available in that public ledger, which is called the blockchain. The blockchain is also called a distributed public ledger, just because, especially in the case of Bitcoin, which is the first one that existed, there is over 7,000 copies of the Bitcoin blockchain distributed all across the world. And that means that there are 7,000 copies that are in sync about the state of each and every transaction. And this is what makes this database, as we can also call it, immutable. Because if I wanted to change an entry in that database, it's not like with a central server where I simply need you to get access to the database and I can change the entry, but I would need to change all those 7,000 copies. And that is nearly technically impossible to do. Now, when we look at blockchains, there are typically two aspects that are important. One is this ledger aspect, where I record the transaction in a ledger, and this ledger is publicly accessible. And it's my record of transactions. And then there is a second aspect, because when we talk about a public ledger, there needs to be a financial incentive to actually run this ledger and to add new transactions to that ledger. And this financial incentive is typically a token that has a certain economic value on each and every blockchain. In the case of Bitcoin, this token is called also Bitcoin. In the case of Ethereum, this token is called Ether. And those people who add transactions into the blockchain get rewarded in a financial way with these tokens for each and every transaction that they add to a blockchain. And this is actually the incentive to run such a software and such a public ledger. Now, since there is a financial value to these tokens, they are traded on exchanges. 
Um, here are just four examples of exchanges where you can trade Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other digital currencies against conventional currencies. And this could be dollars, pounds, euros, rand, any conventional currency that can be traded. So that's one important aspect of it is the price. But then there's also another very important aspect. And based on this aspect, a lot of applications get developed today. When you send a digital money transaction, you would use one of the regular tokens, a simple Bitcoin, a simple piece of ether. However, in that ledger, when we do a transaction, we can also store additional data, which we could call it metadata. And we could use it for a messaging service, for instance. So if I'm not so interested to send a certain amount of money, but I, for example, want to send a message, then I could attach that message to a transaction could say hello world, hi John, how are you? And then this message would also be written into the blockchain. And we would have a timestamp to that message and it would be immutable. So forever we would know that at a certain point of time someone added a message and sent it to someone. Then we can also make these tokens represent other assets like shares, bonds, physical goods, and that way, the blockchain is a very efficient mechanism in order to transfer ownership from own owner to the other, just by using the fact that we can add transactions and we have a log of all the transactions that happened. And then there's a third thing how we can use this metadata, and it's to execute code. And this code is also called smart contracts. And smart contracts have the advantage that these are pieces of code that are immutable, because each and every node that is running a full copy of the blockchain is executing this code. So while in a traditional setting we would have a central server that is running a piece of software or even just one individual computer like a Windows computer that is executing software that we run on it, like a word processor or a spreadsheet, then in the case of a smart contract, the software gets executed on many hundreds or thousands of copies and therefore becomes immutable. And typically these smart contracts are used for contingent claims where we already know today that in the future there will be some contingent payment that will depend on the state of the world. Now when we talk about smart contracts, it's important to differentiate between two terms that could be potentially quite confusing. First of all, there is smart contract code. And that simply means it's a computer program that runs on a blockchain. This doesn't need to have multiple parties involved. It could simply mean that I want to have a calculation run and I want to be sure that it gets completed and therefore I want to run it on the blockchain. I could simply tell my computer to count from one to a hundred and five minutes. There's no second party involved. It's not a contract in the traditional sense, but it's a smart contract because it's running on the blockchain. And then there is a second type, it's a smart legal contract. And that's actually what we would intuitively understand under the term contract. And that's where multiple parties are involved. And multiple parties agree on something, on some outcome, that then in many cases has a payment involved. And a smart legal contract uses smart contract code because that's how the contract gets into the blockchain. And we can, again, as I said, run contingent claims based on that. So in order to make it a little bit more practical, let's take an example. Let's say we bet on tomorrow's temperature. 
let's say there are two parties involved. One person says tomorrow at 1 p.m. the outside temperature will be more than 20 degrees Celsius and there is a second party to that bet and they say tomorrow the temperature at 1 p.m. will be below 20 degrees Celsius. Now, we could put this on a piece of paper and that we need to trust the other party that they will actually stick to that agreement. If we run this on a blockchain, we could upfront put the, our bet amount into an escrow account and once we have signed that contract digitally, none of the participating parties has access to that money anymore and doesn't also need to trust the other party any further because they know that tomorrow the smart contract with the help of a thing that's called an oracle will learn about the outside temperature and will automatically pay out the amount of that bet to the winning party. And the great advantage is here that we have reduced the counterparty risk because the moment we both signed that contract, we know that we can rely on a fair payout according to the conditions of that bet. And I just mentioned the term of an oracle. So the smart contract, of course, is a piece of code that doesn't know about the state of the world. And if we do a bet on the temperature or some other pieces of information, then the code needs to learn about that. And the way that works is that there's a piece of code that can observe data sources. And these data sources could be just normal websites. It could be programs like Wolfram Alpha that can answer a big number of questions about data, about calculations, or it could also be databases. So actually the smart contract is supposed to reduce trust requirements. However, we need to trust the data source. But the good thing here is that the parties that agree to that contract also agree to the data source. And typically the parties to such a contract would want to select a data source which is practically immutable to the other party in order not to manipulate the data. Now, all of this might sound relatively theoretical. If you want to actually get started and, and use this, then I can recommend you to go to this website dabs.ethercast.com. It's, it's one of many directories that lists smart contracts that have been built on top of the Ethereum blockchain and you can just start using it. Sometimes these are just really small programs but it helps you to actually learn how these programs work. You need to install a browser plugin in order to be able to access these and then you can start actually using it and finding out whether you find something that is helpful to you. So when do smart contracts actually make sense? They're not a solution to, to every problem in the world, but in some specific circumstances they can be very helpful. And first of all, when participants have adverse typically economic interests, um, also when we want to avoid central points of failure, and this could be central servers primarily that could have a technical error, and when we distribute the application onto many different nodes, as in the case of a blockchain application, then this is also something that can mitigate risks. And then of course, one big thing is also the immutability of the contracts. So we know that these contracts, after they have been signed, cannot be altered anymore. And then there is an efficiency aspect. So in many cases, smart contracts can be far superior in terms of cost compared to conventional ones. For example, if we have a bigger transaction going on where we need the notary public, typically it's relatively expensive to involve a notary public. And if we use blockchain technologies for that, then we can reduce the cost quite substantially. Now, if you want to start using blockchain technology for applications, you will need to select one of the existing blockchains to use for that. 
And as I said, Bitcoin was the first blockchain that existed. It has been primarily created for this digital cash use case that I presented at the beginning. It's not so well suited for smart contracts. For that, there are other blockchains. And currently, the probably most popular one is Ethereum. And then there are plenty of others, many of which are application specific. So just like when you buy a car, you think about, well, what do I use the car for? Do I need it to transport goods or do I want a car for my family? And based on that, you decide what kind of car you get. It's very similar with the selection of the blockchain platform that you want to use. It really depends on the use case. And then also there is one way how to differentiate access to blockchains, which is also very important. In the case of Bitcoin and Ethereum, these are public and permissionless blockchains. Everyone who has a computer who has access to the internet can use these. They are open source software and you don't need to ask anybody for permission. The full ledger is publicly available and is very transparent. Then there are also public blockchains that are permissioned, like the case of Ripple, for example. Ripple is meant as a digital currency for interbank settlement. Typically, when banks send payments, they do it via the SWIFT network, where they have correspondence banks, and sometimes these transactions take a long time to complete or are relatively expensive. And with Ripple, the participating banks can send payments directly with each other. However, if you want to participate in the Ripple network, then Ripple needs to accept you as another gateway. So the data that's running on the Ripple network is public. You can see the transactions. However, you can only participate if you have been accepted as a party to that network. And then there is a third type, and those are permission blockchains that are private, where none of the data that is stored in those blockchains is actually visible to the public. And one of these is Corda, as an example, which is, um, uh, which is run by a consortium of banks. And then there's a Hyperledger, uh, which is run by the Linux Foundation, which is a technology that is used by uh, a lot of different consortiums, and one of that we'll actually look at later today. Now, one thing that's important if you talk about public blockchains, um, they have market capitalizations. If you simply add up the total value of the token of a digital currency, then you end up with a market cap. And in the case of Bitcoin, it's $96 billion. And Ethereum, which is the second largest, is just one-third of that. And this is a good indication of market liquidity, which sometimes also plays a role. So if you really want to be sure to run a super immutable smart contract, then you would want to use a blockchain that has a maximum number of nodes. And typically, the ones that are used the most also have the highest number of nodes. One other thing that's, that's relevant is that on top of a blockchain, you can create new assets. I mentioned that a little bit in, the, in this metadata and the Collard Coins example. So on top of Bitcoin, you have the token, which is called Bitcoin. That's the, that's the intrinsic and chain-specific token. And then you have also a derived token, well, like the liquor token, for example, which effectively is like a share in the liquor company. And the same applies to Golem, for example, on the Ethereum blockchain. Now, if you want to get started, there are plenty of factors that you would need to consider, as I mentioned. Um, I'm not going through all of these factors now, but I think the presentation will be distributed uh, after the convention. And if this is something that's really interesting for you, then you can go through that slide uh, afterwards. So now, let's dive into the applications and the financial services part. Um, I typically like to... Uh, like to categorize them into six applications. It starts with the remittances and uh, goes over to payments, and we'll look into examples of this in a minute. 
And then we've got cross-border lending. We've got speculation, as I saw, because some people are simply buying and selling these assets in order to profit from price increases. Then we can use it as immutable data, as we saw, because we can simply use the blockchain as a store for information, and we know that this information cannot be altered. And we can use smart contracts in a financial uh, context. So let's start with remittances, which is one of the most obvious use cases. And the reason for that is simply that you can send digital currencies very fast, so they arrive in a matter of seconds, just like an email, and you can send them at really low cost, typically just a couple of cents per transaction. And this is far superior compared to many other methods to do remittances, like Western Union or, or other remittance services, where the fees are typically a high percentage of the transaction amount. And the, the good thing is that today, you already have software that's very convenient in order actually to transact with digital currencies. Um, this wasn't really the case a couple of years ago when this whole space was really new, but today you have applications for phones, for computers, that actually let you transact in these currencies in a really, really convenient and easy way. Now, the other perspective is not so much the consumer perspective, but a merchant perspective. If you want to accept Bitcoin as a payment method, then you've got PSPs that do that for you. One example would be BitPay or Coinbase. And they are superior to other methods to accept payments, for example, to credit cards, primarily because the cost is really low, but it also lets you accept payments nearly everywhere. The great thing is that in order to use digital currencies as a payment method, you don't need a bank account. All you need is a smartphone with an internet connection. And therefore, for financial inclusion purposes, these are also tools that can be really, really helpful. Um, with Bitcoin, which has been the first digital currency, it's not so well suited as a payment method because it fluctuates really heavily in price. But there's also a solution to that. We can create tokens, as I mentioned, and we could even create e-money tokens on top of blockchains. But again, the good thing here is that you don't need a bank account. So you could, for example, create an e-money token that is packed to a dollar value, that is packed to the euro, that is packed to the rand. And in that case, you avoid the currency fluctuation that you would have, for example, with Bitcoin or with Ether, but you still keep the advantage that you don't need to bank account, but you can do transactions from a simple smartphone with an application. And there's plenty of other use cases for these tokens. You could use them for loyalty points. Uh, you could have these tokens represent other types of assets. And uh, one term that is probably uh, quite popular is the term ICO, which is called initial coin offering. And that's a method to effectively raise equity for a project or a company. And you do that by issuing a token, which other people buy, just like they would buy stock in a public market. But with the advantage that this method of raising funds is a lot more accessible for, to smaller companies compared to going public on a listed exchange like the New York Stock Exchange, for example, where the entry barriers are extremely high. And typically, this would only be accessible to companies that make hundreds of millions in revenue. Now, we'll look at a case study of the company that I founded, which is called Bitbond, and we're the first global SME lending platform. At Bitbond, we use the Bitcoin blockchain for payment processing, and also we use machine learning technologies for credit scoring in order to create a global loan marketplace. And the reason we do that is that there's a huge underserved market, 
and the World Bank actually estimates the funding gap of small and medium-sized enterprises to be roughly $2 trillion. And this affects primarily freelancers, micro-businesses, small businesses who have maybe up to five or 10 employees. And the reason for that is that for banks, this market is not so attractive because the loan tickets are relatively small, while it's pretty hard to do credit scoring for small businesses. And that's where we come in with Bitbond. Um, first of all, we get access to these small businesses by using Bitcoin as a payment method. And the reason why we use Bitcoin and not any of the other alternative digital currencies is that, as I mentioned earlier, it's by far the most liquid one. Because what happens on Bitbond is that when you get your loan paid out, um, you get it paid out in Bitcoin, but then normally our borrowers want to have the loan paid out to their bank account because they don't want to start using a new technology like Bitcoin in many cases. And so we have integrated with exchanges in many countries where we operate. In Europe, for example, when you get your loan paid out, you can click a button that says withdraw to bank account and you get your loan paid out to your bank account. And in the background, we send the Bitcoins to an exchange. They will convert it into Euro and pay it out to the bank account. However, for the user, this process is really convenient because they need to understand how the exchange works, how these transactions work. Of course, they can if they want to, it's transparent, but they don't need to deal with that if that's something that they are not interested in. So that's how we leverage the blockchain in order to get access to markets all around the world. And also in Africa, for example, we have a partnership with a company that's called BitPesa. And we started this partnership in Kenya, where when we fund a borrower, they would use BitPesa in order to get the loan either paid out to their bank account or to their mobile money account. Then we use machine learning technologies for credit scoring um, because we're trying to use data that banks would typically not use in order to get access to this group of small business owners. And we typically use data from online accounts that they have. So we're focused primarily on businesses that have some kind of online presence because they could, for example, if they're an eBay seller, connect their eBay account, they could connect their PayPal account. Um, they could connect um, profiles that they have online. For example, we use data from TripAdvisor if they are a restaurant for credit scoring. So we're using alternative data. And the great thing about that is that it lets us score the applicants quite quickly. So our goal normally is to provide the credit score on the same day. And if all data that we ask for uh, is is checked and everything is there that we need, then we could even go as quickly as within 30 minutes until the loan is paid out. And that's something that the borrowers on Bitbond also highly appreciate. If you look at it from the investor's perspective, we have retail investors as well as institutional investors. Institutional investors typically would be family offices or smaller asset managers who simply are looking for annual returns that are hard to get elsewhere in the fixed income seg segment. And the goal is that uh, as an investor, before fees, you earn around about 10% per year after bad debt. Uh, we've also automated the investment process. So the loans go up to $25,000 in value, which means that you want, if you want to invest, typically you have hundreds of loans in your portfolio. And in order to do that efficiently, we have created a tool that's called AutoInvest, and it will let you build a portfolio of loans in an automated way. So far, we have originated worth, uh, loans worth of $4 million on our platform with users from over 120 countries. And the biggest concentration is definitely in Europe and Northern America. Uh, but again, we have users from over 120 countries already simply because of the fact that we're using 
a payment method that is accessible to everybody via the internet. Um, the addressable market is roughly 45 million SMEs globally. So this is a product that's relevant to a huge demographic and typically these are all those SMEs who have digital data available that we can use for credit scoring. So these would be retailers, this would be restaurants, this could be taxi drivers and most of them either use online distribution channels where we use the online data for credit scoring or they have a bank account where we would use the bank account data for the scoring part. We can skip these details about the company and now move on to applications in the, uh, yeah, because there are questions about it. I think we can dive into that later, but uh, in order to get now to the, to the third part about applications in the insurance industry. So where do we see applications in the industry um, based on blockchain? So there are typically three categories that we can look at. One is automation and this very closely relates to uh, what we have seen in a smart contract example with this weather bet where there has been a contingent claim that is based on a certain outcome and where then payments happen. So there's an automation which heavily reduces the amount of, uh, the amount of manual work that needs to go into that. Then we have settlement where the contracts get settled according to the, the trigger events. And then we also have communication and communication primarily means data exchange and keeping contract data in sync with different parties that participate in contracts. So let's take a look at a first very practical example that has already gone live um, between uh, Allianz Risk Transfer and Nephilia Capital. And they have deployed a smart contract uh, that they are using to transact in a natural catastrophe swap. And this is actually very closely to the smart contract that I described earlier. Of course, the underlying economics are different, but what's actually happening on a, on a processing level is, is, very, is very similar. So there's a triggering event. Well, first of all, there's a smart contract that is agreed on what kind of instances there will be a payout. And then a triggering event gets defined and in the case of a catastrophe swap, some kind of natural catastrophe like a hurricane and the smart contract continuously observes a data source that these two parties have agreed upon. And when such a ca catastrophe happens and the smart contract observed that, then all the settlement and the payout transactions that happen after that happen in an automated way which means that the contract already knows which payout goes to which party. And by that, they reduce the amount of manual work to that. So that's one major motivation to do this. And then there's also a second aspect as to why they would be using such an instrument, and that's the tradability. Now, um, I'm not familiar with the details how Allianz and Nefila set it up, but generally what you could simply do, you could make such a catastrophe swap a token that can be transferred where the ownership of that token could be transferred via the blockchain and therefore basically everyone who wants to participate in that could buy and sell this contract. And just by the fact that you issued that on a blockchain, you could immediately also have a secondary market for these instruments. Now one other general area that's relevant for the insurance industry is that you can have audit trails for physical objects. And this could be buildings, this could be cars, 
This could effectively be any devices or items that are connected to the internet. Now let's assume you want to have an audit trail of maintenance on a building. And you want to be sure that when you buy a building, for example, or you rent a building, that a certain maintenance intervals have been observed and have been kept. Now, whenever there's a, there's a maintenance instance, this occurrence could be written into the blockchain, and therefore you would have a record of those instances. And when you forgot to add it, it would also not be there. But the good thing is that when someone added something after the fact, so a year later or so, then this would be very, I would say, suspicious, just because you have a timestamp that is immutable. So you cannot go back in time and say, a year ago, I completed maintenance on that building, because it will have the timestamp of today in the blockchain. And it helps you to actually track that, and you can also attach a payout history to that. So for example, if you paid um, uh, a damage payout to someone for a car uh, accident, for example, and there was a person who wanted to be fraudulent, who wanted to get the payout from two or three different insurances. Then if that car had an identity on a blockchain, everybody who, who was about to pay out a damage that is related to that specific car, they could verify that an a, a payment actually already happened. And by that, this traceability can reduce the amount of fraud that's happening. Now also here in the insurance part, I want to uh, present one very exciting case study, and it's the B3I Consortium of Insurance, of insurers. B3I stands for Blockchain Insurance Industry Initiative, and this is an initiative of 15 insurers who have built a private blockchain in order to build it as a trading platform, also quite similar to the example that we have seen with Allianz and the catastrophe swap. Um, also with the goal to make efficiency improvements in their transactions with each other. And the tr interesting thing is here, from a technical perspective, that they are using the Hyperledger technology. And they implemented it with the help of IBM. As I presented earlier, Hyperledger is a blockchain technology that has been developed by the Linux Foundation. Uh, which is actually quite good because the Linux Foundation has a, has a relatively transparent governance and um, as, a, as a big corporation this is actually quite helpful compared to using public blockchains which sometimes have a, let's say, less transparent governance uh, which is probably also one of the main reasons why B3i have decided for the Hyperledger technology. And also this is a private permissioned blockchain which means that the data that is in this blockchain is only visible to the participating parties. Uh, so these 15 insurers and, and reinsurance firms are the ones and only the ones that see what's happening here. And in this year, they've already launched a prototype that has implemented a real smart contract on that Hyperledger technology, and they plan to use this in production, so with real data and real contracts starting next year. And so what they effectively do is, again, quite similar to what was happening in this example with Allianz and Nephilia. So the goal is to share data and to share settlement and to make settlement more efficient on top of the blockchain. And as you can see in this chart, there are two layers of data. There's one type of data that's shared with everybody who's participating. And this could be master data about a contract, for example. And then there's also private data, where there's communication happening 
between two parties of a contract, for example, that should not be visible to the rest of the participants. Now, all of that is still happening on the blockchain. So how do they do that? Um, the good thing is the, the information that you saw on a blockchain does not necessarily have to be readable to everybody because you can also store it in an encrypted way and only those parties who have an encryption key can access what's actually written in there. So you see that there are some transactions that are going on, but you may not be able to access the content of those transactions. And that's how they have set it up here with B3i. So there are parts of information that are transparent to everyone who participates in the consortium. And then there are parts which are only visible to those parties who really participate in one particular contract. Now, what are the opportunities and risks in general for the insurance industry of using blockchain as a technology? Well, first of all, there are a couple of benefits and, and opportunities that are primarily efficiency driven. So you can reduce costs by not being, uh, by not being bound to handling data in a manual way and paper based and uh, syncing data in spreadsheets, but by having one single source of truth, which is a blockchain. So that's a big efficiency improvement. Then you can also automate payouts, as we have seen, by making them contingent on certain observable events. You can reduce fraud, as we have seen, by creating audit trails that are immutable compared to audit trails that, when they are paper-based, may, uh, may be easier to, to manipulate. And you can also improve intercompany communication and data exchange. Um, just because if you agree on a specific blockchain with another party, then you automatically also agree on a data exchange protocol. And suddenly, in terms of data exchange, you start speaking the same language. However, there are also some challenges and risks involved, as with every new technology. Um, first of all, if we look at this B3i example, um, there's a lot of new transparency that's been added. And on the one hand, this is an advantage, but on the other hand, it can also be a disadvantage because when you can see transaction volumes, even though you may not be able to know the exact detail of every transaction, if you can see some volumes and if you can see revenue data to a certain degree, then this might increase the price competition. And of course, this may not be something that every company in this world wants. So increased competition, which leads to reduced premiums, to reduced margins, is definitely a risk of more transparency in an industry. And another important aspect is the regulatory side. Um, regulators typically have specific requirements on, on reporting and on compliance, and this in many cases also involves technology. And sometimes the regulators may not be fast enough in order to adapt to new technology developments, and this may also be a risk. However, one, in my view, very important remark here is that based on my experience, you can also talk to regulators and trying to educate them about new technologies, which is what we have done at Bitbond. Since we've been the first company that's been using this technology in order to provide SME loans, the regulator was really struggling as to how they would regulate us, and it took them a long time to figure this out. However, we spend a lot of time actually writing and, and talking to them and explaining everything. And at the end of the day, we had a relatively good, I would say, working relationship where the regulator was open to accommodate to you know, financial services providers actually using new types of technologies. So the main message here is 
Um, don't use the regulator as an excuse to not use new technologies, but try to start with small use cases where you can communicate easily what's happening before you move into bigger and more complex projects that may be harder to understand. And then one perhaps last risk that definitely needs to be considered is that when an industry doesn't agree on certain standards, you can have fragmentation and then you can lose some of the efficiency benefits. Um, in the case of the consortium of, of this B3i, they agreed on Hyperledger, which is a blockchain technology that's used by at least 10 or 15 other consortiums from other industries, in supply chains, in the automotive industry, uh, in the banking industry. And the good thing is that when certain standards evolve, that can actually help an industry to capture these efficiency gains. While when you have fragmentation and everybody continues using their own solution, then you may actually not be able to capture the efficiency improvements that this technology may bring. So if you want to get started, uh, my recommendation is to use one of two approaches. If you want to start blockchain technology, probably the, the best way and the fastest way is to start independently as an insurance, for example, and define one very narrow use case. And this might actually sound easier than it is um, because it, it forces you to cut off parts of use cases that are not highly relevant to the one that you defined. And then run a pilot based on that. And just try to see if it works, maybe just internally without real customers, and then at some point with customers, but maybe with just a small number of customers, in order to gain experience with the technology. Don't try to use all the problems that you think blockchain technology can solve when in just one product, but try to separate it. And once you have found a first solution, then try to get others on board. So there's one first way how to get started. Then there's a second way, and this is to join one of the consortia that already exist, uh, where you can share resources and, and participate in pilot use cases. Um, potentially, this is a quicker way to get started because you can already build on resources that others have started with and you can learn from others and exchange information with others. However, if you want to build something unique and if you want to build something that gives you a competitive edge, then it's probably better to start with an individual solution. If you're trying to solve a problem that involves other parties from your industry, then it's probably better to start out with a consortium. In any case, um, that's, that's my main message today. I hope I've shown that the technology is really powerful and that it can help solve a couple of quite pressing problems and therefore get started with it and start using it. And if you have questions about it, I'm here now and also for the rest of the day and I'm looking forward to the discussions with you. Thank you very much, Vladislav. Uh, we'll do a, a selfie later on. Good. I think this is good stuff coming, so if I get this selfie, it might work. I mean, I had a situation where someone came to, advise, to ask me for advice if they should invest in bitcoins. So I said to them, uh, I'm in a meeting, I'll call them back. <laughs> so I'll be calling them back this evening. Thank you very much. Uh, there are roving mics if there are questions. Uh, I can't see clearly from here with the lights. There's a question here, please. 
There's quite a few mics. I think we've got three mics going around. If there are questions from that side also, raise your hand. Your mic will... Thanks very much for the presentation. It was very interesting. Um, I just had a question on how a smart contract would be practically executed. Um, in your example with the catastrophe swap, uh, does a smart contract give uh, permission to draw down the capital from the bank account of the reinsurer if the contingent claim event occurs? Um, I can't imagine the reinsurer would front all that capital in cryptocurrency. Um, and if there then is a manual requirement after a smart contract happens that the reinsurer has to physically make the payment, doesn't that defeat the purpose of the smart contract? I'm not sure I heard the second part of the question. I'll answer the first part and maybe then we can come back to the second one. Um, so first of all, um, in this weather bed that I presented, I said that up front there would be the capital already allocated in a smart contract, which small, for a small bet of course is practical, but I agree that with bigger contracts where it's uncertain when the payout will actually happen and where large amounts of capital are involved, this is not practical at all. Um, but Everyone who participates in a smart contract can agree on a design. So this is a design decision of the smart contract. The only thing that you have when you don't put the capital up front into that contract is that you have a counterparty risk. So what could happen is that um, each, each of the participants has a wallet that they continue to have access to. And now let's assume that uh, a payout event happens. Um, then the smart contract would try to effectively withdraw money from the wallet of one of the participants who is obligated to pay and then pay it out to the recipient. Um, and what could happen in that case, of course, is that the wallet of the pay is not funded with sufficient funds, right? And then you run into that um, risk. It still will help you to, to reduce the manual work, right? So that's another purpose of the contract and that's definitely still fulfilled because if there are sufficient funds, then everything goes very smoothly and all the, I'd say, manual parts of such a settlement would still be eliminated. However, you would introduce counterparty risk, but as you mentioned, it's, it's not practical with bigger amounts of capital that these amounts of capital are blocked throughout the lifetime of a multi-year contract. And if you could repeat perhaps the second part because I didn't uh, acoustically understand. Uh, no, I think that was it. It was just um, in, in the case where the wallet is empty and only part of the, the, the claim could be drawn down, don't you enter a reality where there's a transaction that exists in the blockchain that wasn't fulfilled, but the transaction says it is complete? Well, effectively, it's a transaction that probably never happened because there was an attempt to do a transaction, but it failed. And then it's also a design question of the smart contract. Does the whole contract end after that? Or is there a retry, for example? Like, would you retry for a week every day? Or it's, it effectively depends on how you design the contract. My question is somewhat linked, um, but in the case of the bonds that you, so say for instance you give a bond to someone in Kenya, um, my first question would be, if that person just goes offline completely, like how would you, how would you actually get the money from them? Do you have some sort of, I don't know, um, some sort of law enforcement agency that would back you to physically track down the person? Do you just have a high number of 
defaults. I'm not sure if I missed it. So just like with any lending business, we have overdue loans and we also have defaulted loans. Um, and in terms of the, I would say, Dunning, we apply relatively conventional means. So uh, when someone is not paying or is not paying on time, we'll try to get in touch with the borrower by calling them, by sending them emails, by sending them a letter. So that's the first step that we would take. Um, if that's not successful for more than 90 days, then we would actually pass that claim to a debt collection agency. Um, we have two debt collection agencies that we work with, both of which operate in Europe. If there are claims outside of Europe, then they would pass the claim to a local debt collection agency in the country of the respective borrower. Um, but this process, even though we're trying to automate it to the highest degree and trying to use modern technologies for that, still it's, it's relatively, I would say, conventional and probably most banks are doing it in more or less the same way. I think there was a question that site. Is there a mic that site? Yes. Okay. Um, in an insurance contract, there's lots of confidential information that is actually provided by the one party to the other. Um, but in, your, in this blockchain, everything is publicly is public, public accessible. How do you control that problem? So the good thing is, the information that you store on a blockchain does not have to be publicly visible to everybody. Um, let's, let's take a hopefully rather simple example. Let's assume um, we sign a contract with each other on a piece of paper and then we scan that and we create a PDF out of that paper. And now we want to be sure that this contract will not be altered and therefore we want to store it in the blockchain. We will actually not store the contract PDF in the blockchain but we will use an encryption method that's called hashing which means that we will create one short but random string of characters that represents this PDF file. And now, when someone presents that PDF file to you, you can always create a hash out of it and you will be able to compare it if it matches the hash that's stored in the blockchain. But you will not need to store the actual PDF in there. But if someone changed something about that PDF file, and even if it was just adding one dot somewhere, then when you apply this hashing method, the hash will be a completely different string of characters and therefore you will know that the file has somehow been manipulated. So this is a method that lets you use the blockchain in order to verify whether a document has been manipulated or not without exposing the actual content of that document to the public. And that's how you could also store all kinds of contract data on the blockchain without compromising privacy or other information that you don't want to expose to the public. Has anyone um, that you're aware of in the insurance industry um, actually tested out a traditional life insurance product using a smart contract? So pulling the data from uh, wherever death claims are registered, I mean death forms are registered and automatically paying out to a bank account based on that? So I, I think it's a perfectly valid use case, but I'm not aware of anyone has already done that. 
Um, the, all the examples that I saw were related to, to settlements and were more related to, to, uh, to trading and settling, uh, I would say, more standardized products like bonds and swaps. Um, although, again, the, the, the example that you mentioned is a perfectly valid use case. Um, the main or the first question that would come to my mind is, is there a public source on the internet uh, that can verify actually all the information that you need in order to pay out from such a contract? Um, and if that's the case, then it would actually be relatively easy to set up such a life insurance contract. But again, I'm not aware that anybody has already done that. Uh, yes, thank you very much for the talk. Um, just a question with particular to the, the BitBond contracts. Uh, you said that they pay a return of uh, 10%. Is that uh, relative to the currency that the loan is in, or is it relative to a Bitcoin amount? So uh, this is relative to either Euro or US dollar as a base currency. Um, so the, the loans on BitBond in Europe are Euro denominated. Outside of Europe, they're typically US dollar denominated with a few exceptions where they would be denominated in local currency. And so this return is in relation to that. And since the euro and the dollar have relatively similar inflation rates, then the real return after taking inflation into account is also really, really similar. If we were to um, denominate loans into, I would say, base currencies that have a relatively high inflation rate, then we would need to take that into account. Um, and then, sorry, just a follow-up question, if you don't mind. Um, how does it then work with the transactions uh, between, if you're using the cryptocurrencies to make those transactions, is the volatility of the cryptocurrency, does that cause any problems in actually realizing that return? So the, 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 the time period for which a cryptocurrency gets held either by the investor or the borrower is very, very short. Um, because the investors, and especially the professional ones for which we have highly automated the investment process, they hold their funds in euros or in dollars. And only before they fund a loan, euros get converted into Bitcoin. Then the loan gets paid out. And then typically, it gets paid out to the bank account of the borrower immediately. So there's just a very short time period, typically a couple of seconds never more than a few minutes for which time they're exposed to exchange rate fluctuations. So, and that's simply because we have minimized this time. And there's a small, small remainder, but it's, it's, it's not really creating a big risk. And we're in the process of even eliminating that part. Thank you very much. I'm not, because oh, I'm... Uh, Bitcoin is essentially a cryptographic technology. What would happen in the event that uh, the much vaunted uh, quantum computing or some other ultra-fast computing technology were to uh, make it possible to crack Bitcoin? So th that's a multi-billion dollar question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so as you said, uh, Bitcoin and other digital currencies and, and blockchain encryption in general is based on public-private key cryptography. And I'm not a cryptographer by education, so I have only third-party information about that. And the unsatisfactory answer is some people say even a quantum computer could not break public-private key encryption. 
then there are other people who say it could. <laughs> so I think in order to have a, an actual answer, we'll have to wait until we see a first really usable quantum computer and then we will know. If it won't break it, I think a lot of people will be really happy. If it breaks public-private key encryption, RSA encryption as we use it today for many things on a day-to-day -day basis, even while we're not aware of it, then the digital currency space has a problem, but everyone who's using computers has a problem because all of the messages that we're sending are actually encrypted with these technologies and would have to come up with new and, and harder to break technologies. Um, when I move my Bitcoin, say, from Kraken to a South African exchange, it takes, say, half an hour or sometimes an hour, depending on how busy the network is, to actually verify free transactions. Um, that makes payment um, not practical compared to a visa transaction of a few seconds. What are the sort of practical steps that are being taken to bring that speed down for the transfer of money? Uh, so, first of all, the, the reason it may take several minutes or even hours to send money or to send Bitcoin from one exchange to another is that these exchanges wait for a couple of, as they are called, confirmations. Um, every transaction on a, in a digital currency gets written into the blockchain and the blockchain is effectively a chain of small storage spaces where each of them is called a block. And in the case of Bitcoin, one new block gets issued roughly every 10 minutes. And if an exchange is waiting for, let's say, six confirmations, um, which for high value transactions is the recommended amount of time to wait, then this can on average take roughly an hour. Uh, for small value transactions, uh, people don't even wait for one confirmation. So for example, in Berlin, there's a couple of bars that accept Bitcoin as a payment method, and they don't even wait for one confirmation. Once they see that the transaction has been propagated to the blockchain, then they already accept it, and you can leave the bar after you have paid your drinks. Um, of course, if you wanted to buy a more valuable item in a store, then this is not very practical, because in that case, let's say it's worth $1,000, then you would want to wait at least for one, potentially even two or three confirmations. And for that, it's not practical. So this brings us to the close of day one. Thank you very much for your participation. I've got some eyes that can do quick counting. The room is as full as it was in the morning. And thank you very much. Give yourself a round of applause, please. I'm hoping the room will be as full tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. I'll see you then. Have a good evening. Enjoy the dinner and the cocktail party.